Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice, with your host, Marina. Hello, welcome back to Vice and Easy. Thank you for your patience as I took a little bit of time off during the break. I hope you all had a wonderful holidays with your family and your loved ones and happy 2024. I also have gone through a major life transition. I am actually starting a new job in the new year, so I'm very excited to see what happens. But yeah, my uh, life has been all over the place in the best way. But uh, yeah, it's kind of just all popping up now. And so I have no plans to change the scheduling of the podcast. If anything, I'm hoping I'll have more time to devote to the last two seasons of Miami Vice and to make this podcast as entertaining as it can be now that I'll have a little bit more work-life balance. So I will keep you posted. But yeah, that is an exciting way for me to ring in 2024. And I hope you all have awesome news and awesome things and new journeys awaiting you in 2024. The weather has been garbage. Um, (laughs) My time in Toronto was kind of soured by the weather and like I'm used to it in Toronto, but it wasn't just like one day of rain. It was nine straight days of rain. Maybe not straight, but like it felt like it. I think I had one sunny day and then it was kind of like hit or miss. But it was like just everything is cold and wet, like in your bones. And uh, yeah, I was just, you know, trying to do lots of indoor things, but I was really looking forward to snow. I really wanted to pick snowboarding back up now that I'll have a different schedule. Um, I say that like I'm good at it. It's been 13 years. But, you know, like I really want to start the new year with like a proper winter. I hadn't been home in the winter in Canada for four years because of COVID. So I was really looking forward to it. And instead, I got uh, some Pacific Northwest weather, which is fine, but that's not what I was looking for. And then I go back and it's also been like cold and rainy here in Los Angeles. So I'm uh, really trying to also just appreciate the sun because that's the one thing is that even if it's a little bit cold, if the sun is out, your day will be different. You know, not seeing the sun for days on end really does get to you. And uh, yeah, so at least I'm happy I have some sun here, even if it's a little cold and rainy. And with that, let's envision ourselves in Miami in the spring, summer's a little too hot. Let's envision ourselves in the spring as we get into this week's episode, which is season four, episode five, Child's Play, per IMDb. Tormented by his shooting a 13-year-old kid, Crockett tries to reconnect with his estranged son while attempting to take down a gun runner. We open on like a sexy, humid, it doesn't look that humid, but like kind of humid. Anything is better than what we're dealing with, right? <laughs> sexy, wet street. We see some youths uh, and they're clearly up to no good because not only do they have a boombox, but they have like a crowbar or two. Turns out that Vice is all kind of staked out trying to find this gun running deal that's about to go down. Crockett and Tubbs are upstairs in a hotel, motel, apartment room. Zwitek is pretending to be a bum on a bench, whereas Gina and Trudy are doing their best working girl impressions. So these kids come up to Zwitek and basically kind of like look like they're going to mess with him. So Crockett and Tubbs radio him, give him the heads up. They try to reach it to his pockets. And this is where Zwitek gets rightfully salty with the kids. <laughs> Kids, do you mind? I'm trying to catch a few Z's. Get out of here. Go home. Bye. Damn children. They go play in the street where they belong. <laughs> that song, by the way, that is a Jan Hammer original entitled Forever Tonight. I like it because I legit thought it was like a top 40 song. I was like, I've never heard this, but I'm actually very impressed. It does sound like a real song. Now, you can kind of gauge by what's going on that there is a lot going on next door to Crockett and Tubbs. They hear some fighting going on. They, you know, it's kind of messing up their surveillance. Like they want to make sure they can hear things. So Crockett tells them basically to, to shut up. Hello! Shut up in there! Mind your damn business! I don't really know what he expected in response. Like, that would be the average response if you tell your neighbor to shut up. But because they can hear the woman screaming, they assume that it could be a DV call. So Tubbs 
asked Trudy to change the frequencies so she could be able to hear them despite the fight going on and also send team in case they do need to go in. So as the fight sounds like it's getting more and more violent, Crockett does go over, tries to defuse the situation, kicks in the door. The guy, Ving Rames, being incredibly scary, by the way. He was... He's been on the show before, and he was tough because he needed to be he was protecting his sister this is like whole next level and i do like his flat top i will say i was like oh that's a very like late 80s early 90s haircut and it like really works for him he was being very scary holding a knife up to this woman's neck just obviously being way more violent with her before crockett walks in as crockett walks in he's yelling at them to drop the knife and yelling at him to drop the knife she is doing nothing he sees a gun poking out of the bedroom out of the corner of his eye. And I took pictures and I took a gif of this. You cannot see the body holding the gun. You just see this gun pointing at Crockett. Crockett fires. This is when Tubbs, hearing the gunshots, comes to the room to check in and make sure it's not Crockett going down. Like, they could go in a domestic violence situation like that. Crockett opens the door and he is horrified. A teenage boy is on the ground bleeding from the gunshot. And Crockett is having a really hard time processing. And we have not even gone to the intro yet. Oh, man. And... Top-notch acting, not only in this episode, but especially this scene, because you can see the pain and the confusion on his face. This is not at all what he wanted to happen. And this episode, I remember so vividly from being a teenager and watching this in college. I remember this so, so, so vividly. So I'm coming into this episode with a lot of bias towards Crockett, a favorable bias. So just keep that in mind. If you don't want that taken the episode, you know, feel free. You can listen to another podcast because I'm not an apologist in this episode, but like I remember seeing him pour himself that shot of Jack Daniels, look at the picture of his son. Like I remember that so, so, so vividly in college because that was also kind of how I would process difficult emotions was also with Jack Daniels. So... That's funny. I like, didn't go after men like Sonny Crockett. Instead, I became Sonny Crockett. <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry. I should. OK, let's get into the episode. So after the intro, we are at OCB and we are getting the different perspectives on what happened with this shooting. I didn't mean to hurt her. I saw the gun behind the door. I heard the shot, damn it. I thought son was gonna be dead. Little boy sees his mother crying. You just get scared, you know. I figured I'd go in and my partner's down. You know how many officers go down at domestic calls? Ving Rames plays his character. Walker is the character's name. Thank you before. See, I did a little bit of research this time. I actually remember the character's name. He plays him so well because that's such a classic abusive tactic. Like, I was just trying to scare her. Like, you had a knife up to her throat. And it gets worse and worse as you hear him talk about why he's treating her like this. And I do have an audio clip, so I'll just save it for that. And you can tell Crockett is just full of remorse and sorrow. And Tubbs was just trying to protect his partner he was really worried and like yeah like a high stakes domestic violence call I really understand that like that's exactly what I would have thought too if I were in that situation oh man so at OCB they have a little bit more info so that gun that the 13 year old was holding that is not your run of the mill gun that is a very rare gun I'll let Zwitek and Gina take it from here Youth services have nothing on her son, and as far as the boyfriend, Walker Monroe, he's not in the computer. The gun the boy was holding was real. Very real. A 9 millimeter Belgian Browning high power. 
They mentioned this later on the episode, but I'll just say this now. Like, that is a semi-automatic handgun. That is, and it is very rare. And that is, yeah, that is quite the piece for a 13-year-old to be holding. And if you want a little bit of comic relief from children getting shot, please look at Crockett's fish shirt. (laughs) The colors look amazing on him. I'm not going to take that away. It is just the pattern because the seafoam green, the turquoise, the blue, um, like the kind of like that cerulean blue, like those all work so well with his tan and his hair color and his eyes. He looks so handsome this episode, but like, my God, it's like also kind of like scooped open neck. I can't. And then so... As he's leaving the interrogation room, Castillo introduces him to a psychiatrist that's also an officer trying to help Crockett work through his issues. Crockett, being a 30-something-year-old man in the 80s, obviously wants nothing to do with it. Then gets more pushback when he just says that, you know, he just wants things to be normal because basically... Tubbs will be driving Crockett around. And that is not how Crockett wants it. But again, this is just trying to help him work through his emotions, his guilt, his memories, his flashbacks. All that's coming back. So they're on the way to the hospital and Tubbs is going to drive. This, how they have the kid intubated with gauze over the eyes and the X tape, like the tape is an X shape over the eyes. It is so haunting. I'm sorry that I put a picture of it in the gallery, but like I was watching this episode. I was like that, that on primetime, that's a lot. And like knowing this kid is 13 years old, just like Jesus, the eyes really got to me. And I understand you're protecting from sun and all that, but like, uh, it would like really creep me out. I... Got very icky vibes from that. But uh, in the hospital, Crockett is using his power to make sure that Jeffrey McAllister, the name of the boy who had been shot in this domestic violence call gone awry, is going to get the best treatment. And I really appreciate this scene because I know that Crockett means well. And he is taking into fact that, again... This is a young black teenager from the wrong side of the tracks who was holding a gun at the time. And he might not be treated as well as a white patient, especially a white patient who's wealthy with health care. And I like that Crockett calls it out. And he makes a very succinct comparison as to how he wants this boy to be treated Not only like everybody else, but like the president of the United States of America. This kid is the president of the United States. I understand your concern. We've done everything. Everything you do for the president? You see, because I figure 13-year-old Jeffrey McAllister from Overtown with no money, no insurance, he might not get the same treatment as everybody else. Getting the same treatment as everybody else, detective. That's not what I said, is it? I don't know how you treat everybody else in here. But I expect you to treat him like the whole world is watching. Because I'm watching. So I don't really like that delivery because, again, you're telling someone who's gone to med school, like, what... And you're also, like, implying an implicit racial bias, which, like, I'm sure definitely exists in healthcare. I cannot speak to it, but I also like that Tubbs gets really sassy and puts up his hand in a peace sign and says, the president of the United States, as he walks out. Also, this is not the first time, but is a very select amount of times we get to see Tubbs in business casual with what looks to be like a leather jacket. I really enjoy this look on him. Now, as they're walking out, Walker, so Jeffrey McAllister's, I guess I want to say stepfather, basically, Jeffrey McAllister's mother's boyfriend, the one who was beating the crap out of her, yes, is at the hospital. Calls out to Crockett as they walk by and don't say anything that it's not his fault. 
Crockett doesn't yet turn around. Tubbs responds like, well, if you knew it was your fault, you'd be in Cleveland right now. And I do not understand that reference. I want to say that they have mentioned previously earlier that there was a treatment center in Cleveland. Maybe it was for DV or anger. If you understand that reference, please let me know because I did not get it. Unless they mean like just run away and go to Cleveland. So they kind of get a little bit testy. He tries the like, I'm going to speak to man on man with Tubbs. Like, you know, I've been out of work for nine months. My woman's been turning tricks. I'm like, I think you could try to find some kind of temporary work and it also looks like you're not treating her very well so I'm sure that she isn't turning tricks by choice but she's being coerced into turning tricks because you're not bringing in income or it's like that was the plan all along it just but Ving Rhames like his acting in this episode is top notch this is actually a great well acted episode I really enjoyed it and I would not get sick of watching it Crockett does manage to turn around. Like, I do have a picture of them, like, with Crockett with his back to Ving Rhames with Tubbs facing forward. Because also, I really wanted a picture of Tubbs' outfit. Let's see. He does look really good. He's wearing a great shade of purple. Like, a true great purple. And it just looks so good on him. Is this jacket? Could be leather, but it's, like, worn leather. Like, a slate gray. Like, a dark, dark gray leather. Also, I love Philip Michael Thomas with the beard. Also... John Johnson's butt looks great in this picture, too. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, like, pouring over. of like, oh, I should be focused on the plot, but I am not. Well, let's go back to Crockett's place on the St. Vitus dance. Crockett is, has the TV in the background. Remember, he finally got a TV. As the newscaster is talking about the case, which must be very unsettling to listen to, knowing it's about you. And a 13-year-old child... Young Jeffrey McAllister apparently picked up a handgun to protect his mother. Community leaders are asking for the suspension of the officer pending an investigation of the incident. And now this is the super iconic scene that I remember with Crockett pouring himself. It's not Jack Daniels. Remember from Evan, it's like that bottle that they have on set that looks like Jack Daniels, but it's not. And um, But it's like basically like a knock off the label. As he's just pouring himself a shot and not even in a rocks glass, like just in a shot glass, which I thought was very funny. And it's a framed picture of Caroline and Billy. And it says, happy birthday, dad. Love, Billy. And obviously it's in Caroline's handwriting, but I think it is very sweet. And since Crockett is in that picture, and remember, we haven't really heard much about Billy in a while. So this episode, we're finally going to get to check in on him, but not just yet. Just keep that in mind. Now, back at OCB, I definitely took a picture and pointed a giant arrow at Zwitek's shrine to Elvis on his desk, which I love. Everyone is looking amazing in this scene. Crockett in like kind of like a scooped loose shirt asking about different blood types. He really wants to, you know, see if he can get blood donations to help Jeffrey McAllister from everybody at OCBs. Why take is the only one that matches, even though he's a little hesitant, he doesn't really like needles. He agrees to do it. He goes up to Trudy, who is dating a, uh, I want to say, I forgot what it says in the clip, but I want to say it was like a coach and like a uh, linesman coach for the Dolphins. And he wants to see if possibly he can get some swag, like, you know, a jacket or something to cheer this kid up when Castillo calls Crockett into his office. Listen to this clip and then think about this for the rest of the episode. Well, Lieutenant, if I didn't have so damn much work to do, I mean, we still got paperwork on the Kangalos case and and uh, the DA wants me and Tubbs to sit down and I'd rather just work. Finish it up. Sorry, I'm going to try to edit it out, but I will note that Castillo didn't call Crockett into his office office specifically. He just called Crockett over to ask what he was doing here. So keep that in mind because I'm a little confused later on this episode when we touch on this again. Trudy looking amazing in pink and black. Basically, so after Castillo basically asked Crockett what, he, what he's doing there, Castillo lets people know that there was another bombing this morning and they're still looking after the gun runners, the gun runners who didn't show up for the stakeout that led to the shooting that led to Crockett's unraveling. Let's keep this going. So it turns out that the gun runner, Holiday, had his guys 
meet him in West Miami instead of the spot originally. Or and it turns out that like this is a bigger business than it just appears. So Crockett proposes that they go in looking as buyers. This means Crockett and Tubbs are once again on the other side of town where we see two Utes. The two Utes are stealing a radio out of the car. And I like how the kid does it so swiftly. He has this, it looks kind of like a short stubby knife, breaks the window, hops in via the passenger side, steals the radio, hands it through the driver's side window that he rolls down. He doesn't smash that window, which I thought was kind of funny. Hands it to this other kid who's spray painting on the car, no radio. I don't know if that's a message for like other reckless youths or if that's a message to the guy whose car it is that like his windows open, no radio, and then his other window smashed. Oh, it sucks. And I it's funny, I was kind of worried about that because I had um an aftermarket radio after my original radio in my car died. But again, this was like 2016, 2015. And I was like, oh people. Like, my insurance, I remember, was giving me a lot of pushback. Like, oh, you have an aftermarket radio. I'm like, again, it's not 1987 where youths are going to be stealing the radio out of my car while I'm parked outside. Like, you have to go through the emergency brake to get this radio. <laughs> but it is funny. Uh, when I was living in Echo Park, my car got broken into and they stole my dash cam. <laughs> Oh my god, actually the the funniest one I've ever heard is <laughs> my old coworker lived in the hood and they stole his car battery. <laughs> like they're not even that expensive. And just to try turning on your car in the morning and it's just Oh, man. Sorry. But again, this was reality back in the day. You had to take your radio with you. <laughs> Just, oh, my God. So, yeah, clearly they're not in the best part of Miami as they go into this kind of like pool sexy bar because I do see pink lights. It's kind of divey. It's smoky. There is a cigarette machine. Obviously, I clocked that pinball. Crockett and Tubbs go in wilding. They are very loud, very brash. They're definitely calling attention to themselves. They're wielding guns around and they want to see this guy Holiday. Crockett gets really rough with Holiday, really aggressive, slams his head through the glass of the pinball machine, then slams him down on the bar, holding him at gunpoint. And again, like, they're trying to do business with this guy and Crockett is just flying off the handle. Uh, who is this man? Because you'll definitely recognize the voice. None other than Isaac Hayes. Looks great in this episode. At this scene, his fashion is like, eh, eh, okay, but wait till the next scene that he pops up in. Then Tubbs is there to smooth things over because obviously, if someone do business with me, smash my head through a pinball machine and then slam my face on the bar at gunpoint, I would not be too jazzed. Tubbs, using his charm, goes over to smooth things over, and it works. Crockett, again, being really crotchety, sitting by the cigarette machine. Maybe he should have picked up smoking in this episode. I don't know. Then puts his feet up on the pool table, cocks his gun again. Like, he is just really going all in and on this persona, what have you. Tubbs, as they leave, rightfully brings up concern for his well-being and for his decor, decorum, like his manners, because I don't know what he was trying in there, and neither does Tubbs. And Tubbs will tell it to Crockett like it is. Hey, man, if you don't like the way I work, why don't you get somebody else next time? You can ask for Swite Tech or... Rico, man, I'm sorry. Hey, Sonny, man, I'm in this with you. You can't be. Man, it's like trying to hold two volleyballs underwater. Can't be done for long. You can't answer the questions I keep asking myself. You can't answer mine either. Like, why was it you who went next door and not me, huh? 
Don't shut me out now, partner. A really great scene, not only because you know I'm a sucker for Crockett's theme and like the different iterations that Jan Hammer has come up with and used in within these episodes. Tubbs just really able to break down the wall that Crockett has put up, talk to him, not only just as a friend, but as a partner, and kind of gets Crockett, I don't want to say to see the error of his ways, but kind of to realize that like he isn't, he is going through this alone, but he has support, that he is not actually alone. I need to phrase that a better way. And I really also love, and I made note of this, that Crockett apologizes. I love a bitter middle-aged man who can apologize. I love it. It means that they are learning new tricks, and I love it. With that, we're just going to take a short break. All right, and we are back. I do apologize if it sounds a little bit different. I had to move rooms. Kids, this is why you don't procrastinate. Now let's kill the mood a little bit. We are back to seeing what's going on at the McAllister house. Now Walker seems like he's in a better mood. She's complaining about having to get a new door and that it took so long for the landlord to fix the other problem they had while he's sitting on the bed counting $100 bills. He calls her over and unfortunately Ving Rames gets really scary in this scene in this next clip. Don't go spending it on no doors. Oh, look, I hate those places. All those sick people. I might catch something. Look, you gotta go, baby, because it's the right thing to do. Now bring it to daddy. You know I love you, don't you? No matter what. You're gonna be okay, baby. Just as long as you keep taking care of business. I did everything you said, Walker. You've been fine so far, baby. That's why you're still alive. Oh, that scene, like every scene that Ving Rhames is, is just so unsettling because he's so abusive and controlling and scary. And... He's counting the money, and you heard him say in the clip, like, it's the right thing to do. It is because he wants her to go pay the money for the medical bills because they don't want people looking at the welfare fund. And he grabs her by the back of the head and keeps threatening her, as you heard in the clip, and super unsettling. So let's keep that emotion going as we check in on Sunny. Sunny pulls up to the Ace Theater in Miami, which is closed now it's actually a historical site, has a super interesting history behind it that I will link to in the show notes. He's again getting flashbacks and getting super contemplative. He pulls a fast Yui and heads up north. How north, you say? North, north. Now remember, she was talking about going up to Atlanta, maybe getting a deal at the car dealership that her brother works at. Well, it turns out she's moved north to Ocala, 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 and which is northwest of Orlando. So it's past Disney World. So it is far, far, far from Miami. And he's driving there. She opens the door. (laughs) She doesn't look unhappy, but she looks taken aback. So suffice it to say that Sunny has not been to visit either ever or in quite a while. She says, you should have called. He's like, well, nice to see you too, Caroline. And she brings him in and He's gonna see Billy in this next clip. Well, come here. Billy puts his hand out for a handshake. Morning. Bob Ballard. You must be Sonny. Heard a lot about you. Yeah. Wish I could say the same. Great use of the score in that scene as he's meeting Bob Ballard, the, not the dad, but the dad that stepped up. Again, looks complete 180 from Don Johnson, which is fair. You know, unless you're Melanie Griffith, you don't really (laughs) upgrade after dating a man that handsome. He seems to be 
a little bit older, a little dorkier. He has very big glasses on, you know, very different vibe. So him and Billy get ready. They're going to go for a ride and they're going to reconnect. Sonny's going to try to explain, you know, why he's been so distant. And Billy is a very emotionally intelligent kid in this next clip. You remember when... Remember when you and your mom were at home last time and you almost got... Almost got hurt? Well, I started thinking then that maybe y'all would be better off if... You know, if I stayed away for a while, I'll let you get a good chance in a new life. Whatever. What does that mean? Nothing. I'm just trying to say, Billy, I I was worried about you. So I don't get to see you because you're worried about me? Bob and Mom are going to get married, you know. He said he wants to adopt me. Oh man, I do not think that Billy's attitude is unwarranted, especially if, you know, let's do the timeline. Calderon's return was middle of the first season. So yeah, if we put that into years, it's been quite a while. The fact that Caroline could not only get a new man, get engaged and have him contemplate about adopting Billy. It's been a long time and it sucks. I don't know. I'm not a parent, but we can all definitely agree that Crockett has not been the best father to Billy. And uh, yeah, he wanted to give Billy a chance at a new life. And then he's surprised when Caroline and Billy are having a new life. Oh man. Well, let's circle back to our plot and Castillo and another supervisor and some of the community members are having a very heated discussion about Crockett, who they're not naming for good reason, and what it means for the community at large in this next clip. To know who this man is! No, you don't. You got a mother whose boy is near death. You gotta give these people something! You can't shield this man forever! He will not be identified. Then suspend him! I will suspend him if it's warranted, but not to give these people something. Oof, that's a heated way that he says these people. And I can definitely feel the classism and the uh, judgment in that one. But I also understand why the community is completely outraged into what this case looks like and to the circumstances and to the fact that a 13-year-old boy is now in the hospital on basically life support. Castillo, however, does have Crockett's back, which I do appreciate because I think that Castillo really shows his support of Crockett in this entire episode. But let's check back on Morgans as Tubbs and Zwitek go to visit Holiday, aka Isaac Hayes, to make a deal. And Tubbs comes along with, again, my favorite, as you all know, a briefcase full of cash. And Zwitek gets to test out the guns. My main weapons man. He makes sure I get what I pay for. That's the magic word, bro. Hey, now if I can see the green. No problem. One hundred. A thousand times. <laughs> Amazing delivery. As Zwitek is testing out the guns, just blowing whatever target he is in this warehouse... Vice comes to bust the party along with Metro. Tubbs accuses Holiday of being the one that set them up as they're all hauled off. Now Trudy, looking like a million bucks in a beautiful pinky mauve dress with these silver crescent earrings and this black belt on her tiny waist, she recognizes one of the guns. It's the same gun that the kid had. And she mentions that that's very rare. It's a very rare gun. And that this is a very interesting coincidence. So she and Castillo order them to open up the rest of the crates and check. Meanwhile, through flashbacks, as Crockett is driving back to Miami, 
we get the Crockett and Caroline fight about the adoption. Not the way I want it. Oh, I get it. A little light dinner conversation, then you just pop the adoption out with dessert. Is that it? I would have told you about it. Just the two of us after my you got to know Caroline. Bob. He's my son. But he has a family now. Bob is here for him. Where were you when he was having his tonsils out? Mickey, what you about took him, Caroline? Damn it, you took him! Bob wants to be his father. If your concern is only for Billy, you'd let him be adopted and have a full-time dad. Again, Caroline is telling zero lies, and I am 100% on her side with this. I agree that maybe a phone call should have been warranted, but if your ex-husband and the father of your child isn't calling... Are you going to call and say that, hey, you know, we're moving on like you wanted? I don't want to say that Crockett wanted them to move up, but he knew what was happening. So again, it's a long drive, but Crockett could have made it a little bit more. He could have visited a little bit more. He could have called a little bit more. So I'm on Caroline's side. Now back at OCB, Crockett walks in and the energy is definitely off. There's a guy holding a typewriter, which I took a picture of because it's a great old school typewriter. Everyone's really worried, coming up to Sonny, asking him if he's okay, prompting Sonny to let everybody know that, yes, he's okay. As he stands up and declares this report that he's okay to everybody, you can see Trudy in the back, like, waiting for her turn to ask if he's okay, and then just turns around. You're like, okay, I get it, I get it. And then once he sits down, Castillo calls him on his phone, gets him into his office, and they have a heart-to-heart where basically Crocker was telling him that he went to Akala for the day. Also, wait, early on in the episode, Castillo was like, what are you doing here? Well, not in those terms, but asking him why he's here and basically, you know, insinuating that he should be at home, should, you know, could be doing this, whatever. And then chastising him for missing one day of work. I guess he didn't call. That's it too. But again, if he's not expected to be in the precinct OCB, I don't know. That was kind of like a plot point that I was like, hmm, wait, do you want him in the office? Sorry, not in the office. In the precinct, do you want him at OCB or not? But as they get a little heated and Crockett's really not handling this guilt. And to be fair, I understand that Crockett's going through a lot and I don't think that the psychiatrist that Castillo foisted on him would have helped him anyway. I think you need to talk to somebody else. As they get heated, Castillo breaks it down for him in really succinct but caring Castillo fashion. You pulled the trigger. Now, live with the responsibility. It's going to scar you, age you burn you inside and it should but you got work to do that you care about people are depending on that you got people who care for you sonny like me don't lose yourself keep on going i think that tough love is perfect and coming from Castillo who again is not one to be emotional I think it's a really logical way of putting it and to remind Crockett that this is bigger than just him and that people are looking out for him and are caring about him and that it's really important for him to work on this Crockett goes to the hospital when the doctor comes up to talk about money and throws a little bit of a curveball for everybody involved oh I can probably come up with 5,000 more. Well, actually, there's too much money. Your mother's been paying for the bills in cash, even though the hospital is going to be reimbursed. Cash? A woman can barely afford groceries. Where the hell is she getting that kind of money? The doctor then returns the check that Crockett had made out, and then Crockett goes back to OCB to talk to Tubbs, because this all seems really fishy. Then Tubbs tells him about the guns that the guns that him and Zwitek were about to buy, same ones that the kid had. 
and how rare it is. And they go to another bureau, I'm assuming ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is a kick-ass name for a bureau if I've ever heard one myself. Then, you know, he's kind of talking about how, you know, they were talking to Baltimore and then Crockett and Tubbs were like, wait, wait, I thought this was based in Chicago. He's saying that they're basically setting up networks, that this is a much bigger organization that they originally gave a credit for. And then he says he found something really interesting in that not only are there the fingerprints that match, but there's something else and shows Crockett a dossier. We don't see what's on that dossier, but Crockett seems very taken aback. Then we cut to cute little church where Crockett storms in as the minister, parishioner, priest is talking about Jeffrey and the whole community is there, including Jeffrey McAllister's parents. Crockett confronts the mother and Walker, the stepfather, I guess, about what's going on and that this kid in the hospital isn't Jeffrey McAllister. Jeffrey McAllister doesn't exist. She doesn't have a son. It's getting heated. Tubbs suggests that they take it outside, which good for Tubbs. I do not think this should be happening in the house of the Lord, no matter what your <laughs> religious beliefs are. This should not be happening with the whole community watching. And But Crockett's really pissed and he wants the truth about this kid to come out. And he knows that these two are basically conning them. And they're getting the community to raise all this money to go to this kid who is not her son. Oof. Now we're back at OCB where Crockett, Tubbs, Agents, and Castillo are talking about the true identity of this kid who was a 13-year-old runaway from Wisconsin who got tangled up in Chicago gangs as minor. And they do talk about, which we've also touched on other episodes, how the gangs would recruit and use children to their advantage as a way to have them commit heavier crimes that would create in harsher sentences if the child was over the age of 18 and could be tried as an adult, which is still quite common, unfortunately. And again, Crockett is synthesizing and absorbing all this information, but it still doesn't take away from how he feels. He's a child. And I shot him. What I did, he became a part of me for the rest of my life. Now, they've used him and lied about him and put him on display in the public like uh, he was some damn freak in a carnival show. Somebody had to speak for that boy. So I did. A nice thing to do for him, Detective. Lieutenant, I want to bring in Annette McAllister and Walker Monroe for questioning. Sounds like a good idea. And with that, Crockett and Tubbs, with Tubbs behind the wheel, are going to go visit the McAllisters. Now, again, Tubbs does have another hard drive with Crockett, which I really appreciate, where he basically talks about that he doesn't want to have to speak at Crockett's funeral, and then brings up the question that we're all thinking. Because if he's gone, who gets the car? <laughs> that aside, is a very sweet scene where after Tubbs kind of reveals how he's worried about Crockett, Crockett just like lifts up his hand and they do a little high five while they're driving. Now let's get a little bit more depressing. Back at the McAllister's, Walker, aka Ving Rames, is viciously attacking her, holding her up in the air, choking her, and he's not happy and says that she was the one who was running her mouth about holiday and basically kind of giving them all up. And basically it looks like he's about to kill her when she finds a knife and stabs him in the leg. And this is when Crockett and Tubbs get to talk to her. Unfortunately, she's at the hospital, but she is looking good and she's going to give up Walker. Good for her. Made up the whole thing while we was on the floor. After you shot that boy. He's not your son. Son. No. I don't have no son. That was Walker's idea. I just did what he said. 
He didn't want nobody to know why we was fighting. What were you fighting about, Miss McAllister? When Holiday found out I was seeing Walker, he picked me up one day and, and started asking me a lot of questions. I just want to be left alone. No. I don't care nothing about no guns. Walker found out you were telling Holiday about the guns. When you broke down the door that day, I swear I thought Walker and that boy were going to kill me. He will kill you. Unless we stop him now. Do you know where we can find him? This leads them to what appears to be a refinery. And again, they're moving their guns when Vice comes out. Gina's actually the one that shouts out Freeze Miami Vice in this scene. Shoot occurs. There's a great picture I got of Castillo in the shootout just looking stone face as always. Trudy's still in the same super hot outfit that she was wearing at the office. And I think she's in heels. So like, kudos to her for that. And then we have, fittingly, Race Against Time by U2 playing in the background. Sorry, I could only get the instrumental part. There were a lot of gunshots and lots of explosions happening in the background. And as Crockett goes to chase Walker up the stairs, there's another explosion right after Ving Rames, after Walker gets on the landing and he's almost thrown off. You can see his hands hold on to the side. Crockett's getting all these flashbacks. Also, I noticed that the lighting in the flashbacks is very different and he's flashing back to him beating his woman and everything that's happened. And I want to say it's just like kind of a few seconds that we get these flashbacks. And then Crockett at the end goes over to try and grab him, but it's too late. He slips and falls to his death. That's tough. I don't know what I would do if I were in that situation either. So, oh man. But now Crockett goes back to the hospital and has a really sweet monologue as he's holding this kid's hand in this next clip. Kid, to make you run away. Maybe it's what he didn't do. Maybe he's the one that did the running. Like with me and Billy. What do you think, Gordon? Oh, man. And then he asked Gordon, like, what do you think? And he also asked him, like, what would you say to your father? And, you know, he's trying to use this opportunity to try and be a better father to Billy. And he really wants to kind of get a sign from the universe that he should be a better father. It's like, I can give you that right now. But it's very sweet in that Gordon, the runaway, who was Jeffrey McAllister, lightly squeezes his hand. Again, this kid has been comatose for quite a while. So I thought that was so sweet. Then we cut back to Crockett and Billy again. Billy's on his lap as they're driving around and Crockett vows to be a better father and that he wants to be there for him and he really wants to be a dad. And I thought that was a really sweet way and that's how we end the episode. So it looks like there's no adoption needed and that Crockett is going to step it up. And I think that's a really great way to end this episode. And it's also very interesting that you have like so many different father figures. You have a really bad, non-existent, abusive father figure in Walker. Pretend scam artist father figure. Then you have Crockett, who's just kind of like broken, not really sure how to be a father figure. And then you have the dad that stepped up. And just seeing how they all are so different and really seeing Crockett want to improve. And that's all you can ask for anybody. And with that... Let's sum up the episode. <laughs> Should I say best for last or the best for first? I'm going to go with the best for first. So 
Holiday's goon, also Holiday, there's a great gif of him of Isaac Hayes putting on his sunglasses, looks great in this episode because it's exactly what you kind of want your gun rider to look like, right? If you were to be procuring illegal guns. But his goon with the cut up t-shirt, I'm like, that's not just like an accidentally ripped t-shirt. Like that takes time. Like I have cut t-shirts like that for the bar. Like that takes a lot of time. <laughs> and you could tell even with the sleeves, like with the t-shirt cut off and I, I can't just like him from the back. He is tied with the wild card. I don't think this has ever been a wild card, but Sonny Crockett is our wild card tie this episode for that fish t-shirt. <laughs> Which means that very rarely I get to do this, but my best dressed man for the episode is Tubbs in business casual in his quasi leather, maybe pleather jacket at the hospital in purple talking to Walker. And then my best dressed woman is Trudy tied with herself with that pink dress when she finds the guns with the crescent earrings, also with the black crop top, the blue earrings and the blue and black printed kind of patterned pencil skirt that she later goes to the shootout in. looks like a million bucks. And there's this other scene where I want to say it's maybe hospital administration, maybe internal affairs where Crockett just goes to the office contemplates sitting in the desk, in the chair by the desk, and instead goes to the chair in the back, says nothing, and leaves. It's a great overhead shot. I really, I like the direction of this episode. I don't love it, but I really liked how they use a lot of really interesting lighting techniques. You've got a lot of smoke. You've got a lot of kind of like strobe effects. you got green. It's a very gritty episode that I think is like really conveyed well with the darker themes kind of lending itself to the cinematography. So chef's kiss. Now music. So first off, you all know that I love Crockett's theme in all its iterations and definitely used very well in this episode, but I'm also going to give it to Jan Hammer, not only for Crockett's theme, but for Forever Tonight, the first kind of intro song when they're doing that stakeout, because I really liked it. And because the other two songs, The Dream, which is playing in the pool hall, which I don't believe I got a clip of, sorry, Vacation Brain, and then also Running It's Time by U2, again, kind of used more instrumentally. And I don't know, I'm going to give it to Jan Hammer. I really think the score in this episode that he created really drove the message home. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. Speaking of Vacation Brain, it's Race Against Time by U2, not Running Out of Time. Personally, we are running out of time. My whole thing this year was like, I'm going to be a little bit more succinct with my words and try to get these episodes a little bit shorter and just like full of juice. Clearly it don't happen. Let's see what happens next week. <laughs> now, quote of the episode. My main weapons man. He makes sure I get what I pay for. That's the magic word, bro. Pay. Right? Isn't that always the magic word? Pay. And with that, we are wrapping up our episode recap of season four, episode five, Child's Play. Once again, thank you all for liking, subscribing, for forgiving me for the maybe poor acoustics for the second half of this episode. And don't forget, you can like, follow, and all things Vice and Easy at Vice and Easy Podcast on Instagram, TikTok. Find, like, and subscribe on YouTube. And find, like, and subscribe and leave reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcast. Happy 2024, and I'll see you next time. Hey, man, Miami Wise is number one new show.